So I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, and then 12 to 29. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. Okay, and so jumping to verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all, all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you've not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as, regarded as, those they were, as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And let me tell you about one of my favorite bloggers. Her name is Anne Voskamp. She's an American authoress and thinker. She writes very, very helpfully. Perhaps her most helpful blog was one that described the principle of the measuring stick. It's about three years ago in the measuring stick principle. She was talking to her daughter who was broken hearted about how the world works 
and the difference Jesus can and should make. She says, people use measuring sticks to make themselves feel better. You know, and imagine an old kind of wooden yard or meter stick that you would use to measure cloth. She says, people use measuring sticks to feel better. If people's life is a mess, you meet someone, their life is a mess, you can use your measuring stick of performance or success or parenting or wealth or social status to measure yourself against that person whose life is a mess. And because their life is a mess, they don't measure up to you. You feel more confident. You feel better about yourself. That's if someone's life is a mess. If someone's life is like a monument, they've got a great successful life. You can use your measuring stick, your yardstick, to measure their life against yours, and then you use your measuring stick a bit more like a sword to tear them down. Look at them. Who do they think they are? Like John Cleese, like Ronnie Corbett, we compare ourselves to other people all the time. But she says, measuring yourself... Once you do that against someone, like a sword, it cuts twice. It cuts them and it cuts you. Because you rank yourself against people whose lives is a mess or a monument. But then she says, bringing it all home, the thing is, we're not sizes of people to be measured against. We're souls. It's a great phrase. We're not sizes we're souls. We're beginning this journey into this masterpiece of the book of Romans. We saw last week, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, the gospel condensed. Now a righteousness from God has been revealed. That's in chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. In chapter 3, verse 21, the same phrase is used. Now a righteousness from God has been revealed. But the filler, what happens in between from chapter 1, verse 18 through to chapter 3, verse 20, it's a divine measuring stick. Let me just show you this slide. Four groups of people appear. First of all, Paul is looking at the Gentiles and how they measure up to God's standard. Then he begins to look at moral, religious people and how they measure up. We're looking at them today. Then it's the turn of the Jews. They, how do they measure up with their performance and their ethnic standing and their special way that God has dealt with them, and then he speaks to the whole human race. You see, when it comes to God's standard, everyone falls short. Everyone's life is a mess. It may look like a monument to other people in the world. You may look respectable. You may look quite tidy and smart, morally upright. But God's standard is a, it's a bit like a plane of glass, not a glass ceiling that you can't get through, but more... A piece of glass that once it's broken in one part, it's broken completely. And so Paul, having said about God's initiative, the great news of the gospel, he now applies the reality of our hearts to these four groups of people. We're looking at the second group today, moral people, religious people. And the first thing he's got to say is this, religion has failed. Religion has failed. Look at how the chapter begins. Daniel read it. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. You who measure yourself against someone else. For whatever point you judge the other person, 
you're condemning yourself because you do the same things. Paul, to paraphrase with a a handheld megaphone, says, Hey, you out there, you who attempted to look down on the chapter 1 people that are doing all this stuff at the end of chapter 1, there's a list. You think you can look down like John Cleese on Ronnie Corbett or Ronnie Barker. You can't. Don't you dare do that because you do the same things. You may not do it on the outside, but your hearts are just the same. That's the point we get from chapter 2, verse 1. Now, how can Paul do that to the moral people, to the waitrose shopping people, a bit like me occasionally for a free coffee? How can Paul do that to the National Trust people and the Volvo drivers and the Kia drivers and the Ford drivers? How can Paul do that to the people who have nice jobs and the right postcode? How can Paul do that to people who go on holidays, whether it be skiing or the beach? How can Paul do that to people who look good on the outside like me and like you? Because that's what the Bible does. The Bible exposes and pierces and gives us an awareness if we don't have it ourselves, but we do in our more honest moments, that we are not up to God's standard. Look down to sentence 21 and 22. Having uh, brought the case book before the people, Paul then says in sentence 21 and 22, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? He's saying, you who look down on other people, you who feel superior, you who look good and on the outside, you're just the same. It's there in verse 5. Verse 5. Because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart. These two words are very, very carefully chosen by Paul. They're uh, Greek words that are used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew. And they're very particular words that describe idol worship. People in the Old Testament who would physically bow down towards uh, little objects, whether it be wood or stone or gold or metallic objects, they would worship their gods. And Paul says, you do just the same thing. You may not have idols in your hands, but you do have idols in your heart. You are worshipping something. You may not have idols that you can move around. You may not have an idol on your dashboard. You may not have one around your neck, but your heart is just the same. Don't you dare look down on people. He was saying this to, uh, through a letter that was sent to the church at Rome. We described it last week as about 100 people, not that much bigger than us, surrounded by over a million people. But this church, these couple of houses that would meet together, perhaps corporately, once or twice, uh, a month or a week even, to share life together. It was a mixture of Gentiles and Jews. Jews who had decided to follow Jesus, Gentiles, non-Jews who decided to put Jesus first in their life. And they're there in this mixture, this potpourri, but they're tempted to look down on people. And Paul says, don't you dare do that, because you're just the same as them. read this really interesting story about a Christian minister this week called John Gershner. In 1970, he went with his wife, and he went with his grandchild to Asia. And as part of this holiday trip, they went in a boat 
So there's the three of them in a boat and one other person who was steering the boat. So there is John, his wife, uh, grandchild, and then also the boatman. During this lovely excursion they have, pay through the roof for, this lovely excursion towards the end of the trip, they're getting near the shore and they prang, they have a ding with another boat. They hit another boat, they're very close to shore, but the two boats collide. And at this point, the boat driver or the pilot of the ship, big ship, perhaps a little boat, the pilot, the guy who's driving it, begins to get very, very agitated, very kind of cross because the water kind of comes in the boat and it goes up to about knee level in the boat. There's quite a bit of water, but they're okay, they're safe. Very agitative. And John Krishna says, look, it's okay, don't worry about it. So they kind of drive, you know, go a little bit further in case the man's embarrassed and still wet up to the knees, the boatman's muttering to himself. And John says, look, it's okay, we're, we're, we're fine, no one's died, there's water in the boat, we've enjoyed the trip, it's getting closer to the shore. When they get to the shore, when he moors the boat, quickly he's pushing the people out, thinking, John's thinking, the boatman, he's a bit rude, he's got his hand on my backside, I'm fine. And so out they get to safety, and at that point, at that moment, the boat goes down. Water fills the boat, it gets sucked down beneath the surface of the water, and it pops up about six boats away. The reason the man was so agitated because there was a hole in the boat. And he knew that there was damage. He knew if it was touch and go, if they were going to get close to shore, if they were going to be safe or not. If it had been a few seconds later, they all would have gone down. He went down, he popped up, and he was safe. But John and his family, they almost died because there was a crack in the boat. That's what Paul is saying. I don't want anyone to be under the illusion that morally you're okay, that religiosity will impress God in some way. There's a hole in the boat. There's a hole in the boat of your life. And if you are not covered with the righteousness that comes from God alone, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, chapter 3, verse 21, there is an awful day of reckoning. Romans 2, verse 5, the wrath of God will be revealed. God's settled, measured, appropriate response to our rebellion against him. God is not capricious. He doesn't fly off the handle. Settled, settled, measured response to all our rebellion. The Bible calls it sin. We're all in trouble. Whether we measure ourselves up to other people, it doesn't matter. The standard we need to measure ourselves to is God's holy law. And no one meets God's standard. Religion will fail. Morality will fail. But why? Point number two, because of the beauty of the law. The beauty of the law. Paul says the law is beautiful for two reasons. There's an inward reality uh, and there's also an intuitive reality. It kind of knows us as well. Let's think about each of those. The beauty of the law, it has a, an inward nature to it. Look in verse 1. You condemn all those Gentiles out there, those pagans out there, those filthy people, you moralistic Jewish people, but you do the same thing. We've seen that already, but what are those things? that Paul describes in verse 1. You religious people do the same things. At the end of chapter 1, there's a list of sins. You can see it if you've got your Bible open on your lap. Look at sentence 29 from chapter 1 of the book of Romans. Paul says, here are some of the things, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, 
deceit and malice, gossip, slanders, insolent, arrogant and boastful, senseless, faithless, heartless, rootless, ruthless, disobey your parents is in there as well. There's this huge list. And if you look carefully, here's what's interesting as I've thought this week. This is not a list of behaviours. If you look more closely, it describes inner attitudes of the heart. Everything that happens here is an overflow of what's going on on the inside. And I think Paul is doing exactly what the Lord Jesus did. Paul is describing our heart condition as the main issue that we face. I mean, when Jesus walked the earth, when he spoke in Matthew 5, 6, 7, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, Luke's name for it, he says some amazing and outlandish things. Here's an example. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments. and says, when it comes to how you live with other people, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, you certainly shouldn't kill. And when you read the words of Jesus, when you read the Ten Commandments as moralistic people that we are, we read them just on the surface level. And we say, well, that's okay because I haven't killed anyone. Well, that's okay, because I don't steal, and I certainly, well, I haven't murdered anyone, at least not, in, not with my hands. We're tempted to think like that. We just look at the surface. It just looks like a list of external behaviors, but that's not how Paul or Jesus says we should read the law. Matthew 5.22 says this, You've heard it said, Thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, anyone who looks at another person and says, Raka, has broken this commandment. What does racket mean? I've always kind of wondered. It means you're a nobody. It means you're a nothing. Jesus says, I don't want you to read the law superficially. I don't want you to look at it just on the surface. I want you to understand the heart, the heart behind the law, the inward nature of the law. If you look at one other person and say racket, if you look at them and think, or say, you're a nothing. If you look at them or overlook them, because say, you're a nobody, I'm not going to give you any affection or attention. At that point, you've broken the law. In other words, murder or anger that's described in Matthew 5, 20 and around there, it's a bit like a tree. You know how a tree grows? If it's an oak, it's an acorn. The acorn is planted, it's watered, it has warmth. No sunlight for a while, and then it sprouts with the energy inside of it. And then when it gets some sunlight, it just goes through the roof. It just grows and grows and grows. If it has the right conditions. Sin behaves just like that. Sin behaves just like that in my heart and your heart too. If you overlook someone, if you think that person is a nobody, that is the seed that could lead to murder if it's watered. You could say, you're a nobody, you're worth nothing, and then given the right opportunity and enough temperature in your heart, you could do some damage to someone who cuts in front of you, whether it be in a motor car or an Audi. When someone just comes right in front of you, you're going for number eight, cashier number eight, please, you say, it's just opened, you don't care, beeline for it, and someone cuts in on you, and you think, oh, who are you? That was my checkout. You do exactly the same in the car. Sin is the seed that can be watered and can grow, says Jesus. Don't read the law superficially. This is the heart. 
And so all of us have a deep problem. We're not as honest as we should be. We don't let our yes be yes and our no be no. We don't forgive people. We're not generous to people. When someone wounds us or harms us, we hold on to that as a bitter root in our hearts if we're not very careful and we wait for an opportunity for revenge. It could be physical, it could be social, it could be shame. You hurt me, I'm going to get you back. Jesus says the law, don't read it superficially, it's about the heart. Some years ago there was a professor who said to her students, I want you to read the Sermon on the Mount. And they said, what? Never heard of it. But they did their due diligence, they did their homework, and they read the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing. She said, I want you to write a response paper. How did you feel when you read it? I did not like the Sermon on the Mount, said one response. Not one bit. It made me feel like I had to be perfect. Another one said, I hated it. Another one said, this is absolutely ridiculous. No one can live like that. No one can be like that. Then she said, that's okay. But wouldn't it be great, would you like to have these sort of people that it describes around you? Yeah, of course we would, they said. Aren't these the kind of things that you demand of other people? Yeah, of course we do. And then they went very quiet. Because that's just how I am. I want lots of grace, but I use law against other people. Paul is saying, if you learn how to read God's law, it describes not a list of do's and don'ts, it describes a hard attitude that we each struggle to have. It's not external behavior, it's motivations. And when you see that, this inwardness, each one of us is condemned, utterly condemned. No one will meet this standard. That's just the inwardness. Then you get this, sorry about this word, intuitiveness, just trying to match my eyes. Uh, you just kind of know how it works. It's there from verse 12, the intuitiveness of the law. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. Indeed, the Gentiles who do not have the law show they do understand something of the law and they will be held account for that. That's roughly what it says. Now, what does that mean? There's a man called Francis Schaeffer, a great Christian man and thinker, and I think he put this in a very helpful nutshell. He says, this is what Romans 2 is about. Romans 2 is something like an invisible tape recorder, an MP3. I'll modernize it for one or two of us. It's an MP3 gadget that is invisible that uh, you wear from the minute you are born. It's on the back of your neck. You can't see it. You can't feel it. But it's there. And it records everything you say. Never misses one sentence or one word. It's an invisible tape recorder. But on the day when Jesus Christ returns, on the day of judgment, we appear before God, and a lot of people are going to say, I didn't know God existed, I didn't know who he was, certainly didn't have any of the Bible. You can't hold me responsible. Who are you to do that? And at that point, the Lord Jesus will take that invisible MP3 player, and then it will become visible. And he will say, you know what's on this? Everything you've ever said. I've never read the Bible, that's okay. I didn't realize that you existed. That's okay. Just got this MP3 player. You can't judge me for something I don't believe in. That's okay. I've just got this MP3 player. What will God do with that? He starts to play the MP3 player. 
And he says, I'm not going to judge you according to the Bible because you didn't know the Bible. I'm not going to judge you according to who I am, the Lord Jesus, because you say you've never heard of me. I will judge you by your own words. I will judge you by the standards you set for other people. The times you said you ought to do this, you should be doing this. I'm going to judge you just like that. Because this MP3 player is a list of your standards and your requirements for the people around you. I'm not going to judge you by anything other than the standards by which you have judged other people your entire life. If that was done, Schaefer says, not one person would be able to stand. We're not talking about God's law now. We're talking about our own standards. We want people to live up to this high bar and we want lots of grace ourselves. And therefore, we're absolutely lost. There's a hole in every one of our boats, and it's a big one, and we're sinking. Daniel said to the children, well, where's the hope? Where's the good news? Well, here it is. It's at the end of the chapter, actually, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. Our need is not a patched-up boat. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. At the end of the chapter, Paul begins to get a bit strange, a bit of the deep weird, if you excuse my modern parlance, because he talks about circumcision. You think, what has that got to do with the rest of the chapter? That was hard enough. So let's read verse 25 together. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, it has no value. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, they will be regarded as, as though they were circumcised, will they not? Sentence 28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Here's Paul through the chapter saying, Do you not know? You cannot look down on people because you do just the same thing. There's a hole in the bottom of the boat of your life. You cannot measure up to the standard. You're trying to obey God's law. And some of you are Jewish people. Some of you had this outward sign of your belonging to the covenant people of God that comes from Genesis chapter 17 when God spoke for a second or third time to Abraham who he met in Genesis chapter 12. You Jewish people who are trying to obey the law, you part of the 100 people or so in the church in Rome, you think that's what you need? You Gentile people, you're tempted to undergo physical circumcision so you're like the Jewish people, so you're part of one of God's special people? That's not what you need. You need circumcision of the heart. You need to be identified with God not by outward appearances, you need a new start. You need a fleshy heart, and at the minute your heart is a heart of stone. It's not about outward appearances. It's about the inside. It's about your heart. And that's what that sign always pointed towards. It was just a sign. Abraham was there talking to a God, and God says, if you want a relationship with me, if you want an inward, personal, intimate relation with me, you need to have an exterior sign. You need to have an exterior sign so then rather than writing a contract, you will be under the oath. And it's a physical sign of something being literally cut off to say that if you do not keep the law 
You'll be cut off from me. The relationship will be over. Rather than signing, you have a physical operation. It's pretty painful, pretty bloody. It's outward obedience, and Abraham failed again and again and again. And so have I, and so do you. So why does he bring it up? I think because of the heart importance that Paul speaks of in another passage. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Paul is thinking back to the cross, and he's meditating on this idea of circumcision. Paul says, in him, in Jesus, speaking to other people, in him you also were circumcised, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. By the circumcision done by Christ, you're in Jesus by faith, and friends, he was cut off. He got the covenant uh, stipulated consequences and curses. He was cut off so that you never have to be. You're in him. Physical operations don't matter. You need a new heart, which by faith you will receive when you know who Jesus is. Jesus Christ was getting what the circumcision represented. He was cut off from his father, says Isaiah chapter 53. Father, where are you? Daddy, where have you gone? There was blood everywhere as he died on the cross. He was taking all of the justice of God, the wrath of God that Romans chapter 2 verse 5 speaks of. Jesus took in our place for our sake. He took so that his father might be enjoyed and known, not blasphemed against. And that's why he can say, in him you were circumcised, but not with a circumcision made by hands, because the Gentiles weren't. But now we can stand in Jesus because of what he did. You see, when you read the law properly, not just on a superficial level, when you read it and you understand it, it's describing a person. One person who walked the earth whose name is Jesus. Instead of thinking, oh no, there's no way I could do this. Man, I've said racker against a lot of people, let alone killing someone. I wanted to do that to a few. No one in this church, of course. Jesus is saying, when you read this, you need to see it's describing a person. A person who walked the earth obediently. It's describing Jesus, the perfect man, the man who kept every single jot and tittle of the law. He never thought ill of anyone. Even of his enemies, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even of someone who betrayed him, one of his closest friends, he went after him and restored him. Don't you see, don't just be crushed by the standard of the law that we're all aware of. You need to see the beauty of who Jesus is in the law. When you see that he's been cut off for you, when you see the beauty of his law-keeping life, then you can sing as we sang this morning, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Before God, the righteous judge of the whole earth that we will all face one day, we have a surety, a sure and certain hope, whose name is Jesus. And so Paul can say later on in Romans, there is now no condemnation. You can say nothing against me because we're all in him. Standing by yourself in your religious clothes and your moral clothes, there's no safety there, but there's safety in Jesus the perfect Son of God. And once you understand that, 
Once you begin to meditate on that, it pricks your heart. Not just data anymore, it pricks your heart, that heart of stone, so that it begins by God's Spirit to be transformed into a soft heart, a heart of flesh. It sees Jesus not just as a law keeper, not just as a tick chart, kind of on a child's wall. Someone who is altogether lovely, altogether beautiful, altogether powerful, and altogether obedient. And now we stand in his strength. Now we're clothed in his righteousness, not in our own standards. So how do we understand the law? Here's a paradox to close. How do we understand the law? On one hand, the law is so important that Jesus died to fulfill the requirements of the law. We should, with the Spirit's help, live like crazy, work like crazy, to try to not say racket to anyone, to try not to steal, to try not to uh, break uh, covenants that we make with people. Oh, yes, should be yes. We should be generous people. We should honor other people. We work hard to be like that, but we will never do it in our own strength. So when we fail, here's the paradox. There's no guilt because we stand secure in the righteousness of Jesus. No condemnation. Do you see? There's a hole in the boat. We are sinking. But if you're a Christian, you're not in the boat. You're in a person. And his name is Jesus. So when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Friends, if you are not a Christian, you're still in the boat. And there's a great big hole. Friends, this has got such big applications that I've just touched on. What about how we approach other people with our measuring sticks? We can put those away if we're in Christ. And grace abounds. We don't judge other people. We look at ways to bless them and love them and to know them. When someone wrongs me, I can leave that to God. When someone says something against my character, I can in God's strength forgive them because Christ has forgiven me. I'm not going to judge them because God is the judge of all the earth. Friends, are you in the boat or are you in Jesus?